And a very good evening and welcome to another edition of the Liam Davis Show here on Shoreditch Radio in London. I hope you've all had um, a really good day and a really good week since we last spoke to each other last week. Uh, busy show tonight, um, as it always is, I think, on this programme. Um, later on in the programme, we'll be talking, we're doing, uh, looking at the, analysing the day's news. Uh, delighted to say Ella Crine will be joining us again and we'll be talking to her about some items in the news, including um, the worrying rise of COVID cases, particularly in London um, and across the country, actually. Um, there's a very worrying trend with the Delta variant. We're seeing more and more cases. Are we going to end up in another lockdown, um, potentially even this side of the summer, uh, which would be very, very devastating, but perhaps necessary given that where we're at um, at the moment. So we'll be talking to Ella a little bit about some items in the news uh, when she joins us um, later on in the programme. But my first guest on the programme this week, um, delighted to welcome him to uh, Shoreditch Radio. Um, you might all remember him pretty well, a lot of avid uh, watchers of The Bill, which used to be uh, a television programme on ITV and ran for many, many years. Uh, my guest was actually one of the original cast um, of The Bill, um, for those of you who might remember it, when it first came on our screens in 1984. Not only that, though, since he's done a lot of other work, he's worked in the theatre, um, he's, he's done other roles in television, and he's, these days, um, very a very, very distinguished voiceover artist of, of I'm sure many things and I'm sure he's going to tell us about that um, but delighted to welcome him onto the programme um, John Isles John welcome to the programme thank you Liam it's lovely to be here and thank you for asking me it's lovely to have you on um, so John tell us a little bit let's start right at the beginning where did your sort of interest in drama and acting uh, start where, where, where sort of did it come from Definitely, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> spoken to on this programme have all said that it is one of the hardest fields to break into because you have to put a lot of time in you could be between work for long periods and I think particularly when you're starting off to sort of get that break into the industry is is really really difficult I mean I've heard of people who have been on this programme who've said that they have done admin jobs for example just to pay the bills because they could go months without a job 
and then something comes along and then you might then be back in something else temping for a, a short period before the next role comes up yeah. where, where did it sort of the sort of break come in for you was there was there a, was there a break that came in that got you sort of in Obviously, that was 1984, um, and I mean, it must have been when it came along. I mean, obviously, we're talking about a big network program here, and obviously, the huge success it was. Now, obviously, you were in the program for eight years. I know you did do a couple of come back and do a couple of specials after it. Um, but I mean, when you first arrived on the on the program, I mean, you working with. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think Chris Ellison came along a little bit later on, but you were working, 
I think uh, it was um, uh, John Salthouse and, and, and Eric Richard and, and uh, um, obviously Tony Scannell, whom, you know, died not that long ago. Um, I mean, you worked with those guys quite a lot. I mean, tell us about those early experiences, because I think, you know, you, you were working really and truly where the Bill's roots were, where sort of East London, sort of Wapping and sort of that part of town. Where the old Sun headquarters were. Yeah. Um, um, I can't remember the name of the road now, but Sun Lane or something. But yeah, yeah, right there, in that part of London, in a, a, a disused warehouse, which was, and it was small. It really wasn't big. There were 15 of us in the cast then. Um, that was the whole cast. Um, what we didn't know, it wasn't a big deal at the time because all of us were of that age where we'd done several episodes in different shows. And at the outset, that's what this looked like. We, then nobody talked about going to series, or, or rather, you know, repeat series, or the longevity of it. It was a series, and I was probably going to be in about three or four episodes. So it, it wasn't a huge deal. Mm. But the whole technology thing was... We didn't appreciate the innovation that was going on. The first handheld cameras, running camera shots, they'd never been done before. Um, and the innovation of uh, the way it was filmed, um, rehearse, record, rehearse, record, going out in a tiny van that had no signs of being a television, um, you know, set up. Yeah. It was just a, a, a little camper van. And they were like six of them squeezed into this little camper van with a tiny monitor. So we didn't get, we didn't make a, a fuss wherever we went. And we could all, we could just film anywhere, just uproot and go. Um, and we didn't appreciate it till later just how innovative the, the, the shooting style was, the, the, the fly on the walls of documentary type feel, grittiness to it. Uh, and then, of course, it just went on longer. They'd, they'd say, we'd like you a couple more episodes. Mm. The first series finished, 12 episodes, then it was six months out of work. Um, and then you came back for the second series, which you didn't know was going to happen until, oh, I don't know, three weeks before you started filming? Yeah. As far as we were concerned, the first series was done. Um, but the big thing was the reaction. Yeah. With the viewing figures, suddenly even thicky me. <laughs> oh, this is a bit different. <laughs> I'm not used to this. 15 million people watching. You know, these days it's unheard of. But yeah. There were only half a dozen channels, if that. Well, I think it was four, maybe four channels, I think. Yeah. No, I think it was just BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, Channel Four. Yeah. We regularly got fifteen million all, all the time. If we dropped below that, everyone was a bit disappointed. The big lump. Yeah, crisis time. Yeah. These days, you got four million. You get recommissioned at the drop of a hat. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you could tell. Obviously, it must have um, John must have really taken off because, as you say, the first couple of series I think were sort of like 12 episodes or something like that and then from about the mid 80s onwards I think from about 87, 88 it moved to I think at least once or twice, tw well, I think maybe twice a week a bit later on but once a week for like near enough the whole year yeah. That's right and, and then of course then of course it started getting bigger um, because you, you, you couldn't just use the same actors all the time so the cast started expanding um, and in CID we were a bubble what you were saying about Chris Ellison Tony Scannell um, and uh, uh, Galloway then to become um, uh, Chris Ellison and Tosh Lines Kevin Lloyd yeah Kevin Lloyd of course yeah yeah. Well. Um, he did join a little bit later I think but so we were in a, a CID bubble and it was they were a lot more experienced than I was to be honest um but we all, we got on really well. I mean, really, really well. Um, and it was just a riot all the time. Mm. 
Mm. I mean, some might say that you was in it really when the show. I mean, I mean, at a later peak, um, maybe the late nineties. But when you were in it, that sort of early nine, late eighties, early nineties period. It, the show really enjoyed a real peak because, as you said, there was Chris Ellison, there was uh, Tony Scannell, um, and there was obviously you mentioned Kevin Kevin Lloyd, um, who obviously sadly died, um, you know, sometime um, later on. Um, and then there was other cat, yeah, and his brother obviously tragically died, yeah, in in, in on filming and location, yeah. Yeah, no, and you're absolutely right to mention that. I mean, that's sort of a sort of um, a real, real tragedy. Um, and then you, I think you had Mark Wingett, who of course played um, Jim Carver, somebody who you worked with very closely on screen. I mean, a lot of the cases that you did on top was with him. Because um, well, he was CID. Yeah. That, that's right. He was CID, and then he got demoted into uniform. Yeah. After I left, so I didn't care. It might have occasionally gone three times a week at some point, yeah. those were the guys that you worked closely with Chris Ellison and Tony Scannell in that era were so associated to the programme obviously Tony isn't with us anymore but when I think about Burnside and Roach and all of that I mean they were iconic characters of of the programme and then of course towards the end of your time on the programme I know Simon Rouse joined the cast as uh, Jack Meadows who again went on to be a, a, a real star of the programme I mean working with some of those characters it must have been, as you mentioned, the social side, it must have been fantastic fun um, working with them because they were such powerful actors. And you say that CID bubble must have been, uh, you know, probably I dare say you did socialise a lot outside of the job, I guess. We did. Well, we went to a lot of functions and things. Um, uh, Barbara Thorpe, who was um, Inspector Fraser, um, is still a very, very close friend of mine. And she and I would go to... Basically, we'd go to the opening of an envelope. Just, <laughs> we just, just love dressing up, going to gardens and all that. But also, the other guy 
only because I did a few, because we were invited to police charities, and all I got was stick. They hated me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say they seem to have a, a a real problem with disassociating me from being a policeman. And I had to say, I'm not a policeman. I'm an actor. <laughs> I would get into arguments with CID people saying, "Where do you get your money? How do you afford those suits?" And I said. I don't afford the wardrobe. <laughs> yes, they're very expensive to the point where they have to cut the labels out and put Marks and Spencer labels in it because other members of the company are getting, jealous. getting annoyed. Wearing five hundred pound suits, and I'd say, I'd say, it's not. Look, it's Marks and Spencer, and it wasn't. It was a five hundred pound dirty frog suit. I've not said that in public before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was it great? Uh, no, honestly, they were great, and they were—they were such good. Andy. You, you came with your A game every morning. The, the level of the, the, the wit that fired around that building was just—it was magical, actually. Mm. It was. It, we just laughed and laughed. That's what I, my abiding memory of that show. Those eight years. I mean, that's the thing with work, isn't it? When you laugh and then you enjoy it, it doesn't feel like work, does it? That's what makes it what it is. So much trouble. We would have producers coming down to the floor and say, "You stop! You're costing us money now." (laughs) Because that's like being in school when a teacher starts going red in the face and shouting at you. Yeah, you know how much more you laugh. (laughs) Yeah, true. Very true. That's that's very very true. I mean, in terms in terms of um, leaving the programme was it your decision that you felt that the time was right or actually it was above and felt that perhaps the character it was it was perhaps time to to to, to, to end it not at all not at all it wasn't my idea that all went out in the press John has decided to move on to other projects John didn't have any other projects <laughs> 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 a new producer came in yeah. and just like they do with Emmerdale, Corey although I, I'd say it's not a soap it did become a bit of a soap I think but as they do the new producer comes in has to make his mark so there's a night of the long nights and they cull and I was one of the unlucky ones that I was cold but I'd always said in a few interviews when it did come out that it wasn't my choice I always said that he didn't understand the character because on his own he was pretty dull he was dull he was he was a narcissist he was into his cars he was he, culturally he was he wasn't one of them but the point about it the, the essence of drama is conflict and what he did was he wound other people up and that's where the drama came from that's where he was he was a fly in the ointment that was a really effective tool but some of the writers especially Barry Appleton knew that and he loved my character absolutely loved it and, and wrote many of my best episodes because he saw how you could use a character like that but yeah not my decision no <laughs> I'll tell you what I think triggered it as well was that a year before I left I'd been offered a stage tour a three month stage tour of the premiere of a stage version of The Great Gatsby and humanity just took over I just <laughs> how cool is that <laughs> I was going to say that sounds like a real uh, a real thing that yeah awful production Um, and so when I went back it's a writer-led show the bill producers don't tell writers who to write for they choose who they write for well I'd been out of the frame for six months and so when I came back there were already new writers who didn't even know me and when they were being shown episodes to decide who they wanted to write for I wasn't in them Mm. And so there was an awful tailing off, and I think that's what triggered it. 
I mean, when you reflect, I mean, you, uh, you've kind of probably already answered this question, but when you reflect back on your time, obviously you feel very warm and fond when I hear you speak about it and how much you loved it. Was there, When you left the programme, I think you mentioned Barbara Thorne there, but was there anybody that you kept in touch with after you uh, left, that left the programme? I mean, I, obviously Ben Roberts, who was such a big star of the programme, um, Chief Inspector Derek Conway, of course, died very, very recently, and he was a huge, huge part of that era as well, wasn't he? Yeah. He's a very accomplished voiceover artist and audio book narrator. So we were in touch anyway. And she she told me about it before it was announced, obviously, and that was awesome. And today I've just had a text from her um, inviting me to the funeral, which I can't go because I'm. Um, um, was actually a big part of the program as well actually wasn't he as as the top the top chief wasn't he I mean he was a big part of it wasn't he for many years I mean, I think also of Colin Tarrant as well, of course, which was a very tragic story, of course. Um, you know, not that far from you in, in, in Bristol. Um, obviously, he committed suicide. Um, I know. I didn't know anything about that. You know, that was obviously a very tragic story because, again, in your era on the programme, he was a massive part of, of, of the programme. Which was really interesting. So, I think somebody's mugged someone. Oh, well, that's not good. I mean, but when we keep talking about the bill and all that, some great, some great stories. But of course, when you left the bill, 
um, you sort of moved into a different avenue. I know you did some theatre work and you've, you've done a few other things and you sort of moved into voiceover work. I mean, what was sort of behind the thinking of sort of the move away from maybe television into into that sort of work? Listen, I'm going to let you go because it might be that Neighbourhood Watch might need you outside. Um, it's, it's all kicking that's up. What I mean. So, you know what? We, I think we might come back for a part two of this. Um, might come back for a part two of this interview because I think it would be good to speak to you about other things that you've done. But I'm going to let you go so that Neighbourhood Watch, you can get out there and maybe um, help the local community because <laughs> it sounds like it might need it. Um, but, John, it's been lovely speaking to you and I think we'll get that part two set up very, very soon. But it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you, John, and all the best. Good luck outside when you get out there. Yeah, I'm going to go and sort that out. It'll be, like be like being back on the bill. <laughs> Look after yourself, John. Thanks very much indeed. It was lovely having you. Thanks very much, John. And that was John Isles, uh, the actor John Isles, on the Liam Davis show here on Shoreditch Radio. Lovely talking to John Isles. Um, we're hopefully getting back. I hope he manages to sort out the street robbery. Um, you know, it sounded like quite a serious incident that he was dealing with as he was in the interview out in the road in Plymouth. Um, anyway, there we are. Lovely to talk to him. Hopefully, we'll get another chance to talk to John um, sometime again soon. Uh, my next guest um, is a regular guest on this program. Delighted always to welcome her back. Um, she joined us up for an annual monthly chat about items in the news. Always nice to speak to her. Hot foot drop, getting through the city tonight as we are. Just trying to. To get things back to normal, Ella Crine. Ella, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. It's nice to have you with us again. Um, listen, there's probably only one place to start um, because I want to kind of get COVID out of the way because it seems to be obviously the story that dominates the news, but we have to talk about it because it is so topical. Um, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on I mean, there's so much talk around this that I mean. There is some worrying statistics out there in regards to COVID and numbers and the increase in numbers, particularly in London. Um, do you do you support the decision? I mean, was there only one decision that the lockdown, I say the total lifting of lockdown restrictions um, to be delayed until the 19th of July? Do you think it might go on longer than the 19th of July? Or do you think all the Tory rebels are going to go crazy if uh, um, if it's held on longer than that, simply because of this restlessness around we need to get all our freedoms back. 
Well, we mustn't make this about party politics because it is, after all, about people's safety and and our lives. Mm. Um, but I think there are a few things going on. The first is, were we right to delay from the 21st of June? And the government seems to think, based on the data, that we just needed a bit more time to do a few more vaccines. Mm. Now, I think that's probably true. It's quite hard to assess from, from your sofa mm. without being a scientist and reading all of the data. Data, yeah. Um, but there seemed to be a consensus that, it, that things weren't looking so great and that we should get some more vaccines done. But that having been said, our vaccine programme seems to have slowed right down and we haven't been doing that many first or second doses in the last few weeks. So they really have to, if, having said they're going to do that, they've got to use this time now to get more people vaccinated quicker I mm. think um, so there's that kind of going on and then th- I saw a story on my way here that the government is thinking maybe they'll lift everything on July the 5th now mm. so I mean that shows that there's some confidence and, and some good feeling around the government about what's going on but it's really hard to know at the moment I mean I think that's that's. The, I mean I suppose the reason why I feel that's slightly dangerous is because um I mean, where I'm based in North London, I've seen there's been an, a big rise in the number of cases of COVID. Um, now, what I think is worrying about that, is it right for us to drop all restrictions when actually we are still seeing, particularly in London anyway, at the moment, a rise in cases? I mean, London is the most populated city in, in the UK. Um, and, I mean... I don't know, it doesn't necessarily sit comfortable with me that July come, what's that, Monday week, that we could be saying, go and do whatever you want, you know. I don't know, particularly indoors, where we know the virus spreads much more, you know, there's a greater transmission risk. And as we know, this Delta variant does have, I think, is it a 40 or so percent more transmiss- transmission rate than the previous variant? I don't know. It, I, for think, me, it's a bit... I think it's. I think it would be very risky. I, well, I even think, think July the 19th might be, but... Well, I don't think they probably will go ahead with July the 5th. That would be my honest assessment, because I'm not sure that the government has much to gain by going two weeks earlier, where mm. we can have two weeks more of vaccinating people and everyone's now set on July the 19th. So I don't think they'll... I don't think they'll particularly gain much by opening on July the 5th. Um, and I think that they could potentially lose a lot if things go wrong later on. Mm. But, look, I think the thing is that cases of COVID are going to rise, and they're going to rise... If they don't rise this summer, they're going to rise in September, and they're probably going to keep rising until about February next year, Yeah. and then they're going to go back down again. And that will happen pretty much whatever we do unless we do a total lockdown. I mean, Boris Johnson and did say yesterday, didn't he, that we should expect a rough winter. Yeah, but I think I think it's it's not clear what he means by that because what he could mean by that and would be I think which would seem obvious to people is that we'll have a combination of things. One of them being a rise in covid hospitalizations, another one being the flu's going to come back because we didn't have very much flu at all last year. And the third one is going to be colds, and the fourth one is that our blessed NHS has had a really, really tough year and a half. Mm. It's not got basically any more money from the government. We've got a shortage of nurses and doctors because of Brexit and lots of people going back home to their European countries or not coming here because of COVID. That's a fair point, yeah. And so we've got an NHS that is understaffed, underfunded, underfunded, overstretched, had a really, really tough time over the last year and a half and is going to have as it does every year, a difficult winter. So Boris might just be referring to that, and that is I, that would, I think, be quite right. A lot of that, however, is his fault. Mm. Um, but that's the bit he won't say. I mean, there's been a lot of talk, hasn't there, that the government reacted very, very late. I mean, we've seen in some European countries they've sort of managed to keep control of the Delta variant, where it's been argued that here because we didn't shut down travel from India until I think it was the 23rd of April, yeah. that actually, I think between the 5th and the 23rd, I read somewhere there was something like 100,000 yeah. people who came to Britain. Um, now, some people have suggested that was due to trade links and trade talks with India, yeah. that perhaps the government was putting politics and trade before health. Maybe so. 
I mean, I think there is a strong argument here, like some of the other countries. We and this again, this has been a, 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 a characteristic of this government since this began. This late reaction to actually stepping up the measures and and putting proper. I, I don't think many people would have had an issue if the government had said, you know what, we're shutting the land borders, we're not letting anybody in as such. It's emergency travel only, that's how it's going to have to be. We need to see how this works just to keep things on a level. I don't think there would have been many people necessarily might have had an issue with that. No, I think you're exactly right. And the, pro- and the problem is that we've got this delay now because they didn't shut the borders earlier in, in April. And, well, specifically the borders to India, not necessarily the borders to everywhere, but the borders specifically to India, where there were huge numbers of cases Mm. and it should have been obvious that something big was going wrong. Mm. I mean, people remember the cries for supplies of oxygen from India. That's right, yes, yes, yeah. I mean, it was a terrible situation and it was obvious. It was not difficult for the government to spot that one. And for whatever reason, they didn't do it. And that's been the story of the pandemic for us, really, is the government not reacting quick enough. And that delay means that we have more lockdown restrictions in the future and it affects all of our lives. Which is why I think that the government has to reopen, if not on July the 19th, shortly afterwards. Because if we don't, what we're basically saying is this is life now. Because once we've vaccinated people who are vulnerable yeah. to hospitalisation or death and we've now done that we've vaccinated 99% of people who are at risk of being hospitalised we've got rid of the kind of risk, the serious risk of COVID which is to, to people's lives mm. and we've also suppressed the amount that the, the disease can circulate by vaccinating and so if we just continue as we are we could we could keep these restrictions in. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's, that's the key. I mean, that's a really good point, isn't it? Because I think about also in schools and things like that. I mean, I know the cut, Nick Saw, who's head teacher of a school in, in, in North London, was on the programme last week, and he said that, for example, in schools at the moment, if somebody tests positive, everybody in that bubble has got to self-isolate. Now, if we're going to live with managing it, all right, and I accept that under-18s haven't been vaccinated, that I accept... But even he got an alert. He's had both his vaccinations. He's a head teacher. He's had both jabs. Um, and he got a, a, a test and trace alert on his phone and was told by his governors that he has to self-isolate because that's the regulation. Now, that, if that's the case, I mean, for somebody who's had both vaccinations, I mean, to me, that's now ridiculous because... Yeah. Surely now, if you've had your vaccination, you just get on with life. Well, surely. It's, even, it's even worse than that. You get you get one child testing positive, and the whole year isolates. Yeah. And they isolate for ten, ten days. days. Yeah. And that's them out of school for ten days. Ten that days regularly. And yeah. by comparison, by the way, it's a good comparison. This one, lots of people will have seen that Chilwell and Mason Mount are having to isolate tonight. Contact with one of the Scottish players, Billy Gilmore. Billy yeah. Gilmore. Now, the rest of the Scottish team isn't isolating. They were all playing football with him the other day. <laughs> they were playing football with him on Friday. And they're not isolating. They were sat in the changing room between before the match, in the middle of the match, after, after the, match. the match. Yeah. Presumably, they train together as well. Presumably, they see a lot of each other, you would imagine, <laughs> given they're on the same team. Similar, I mean, you would think, I mean, to being it's, it's, in the same year as another school. kid. Yeah, it's ridiculous, isn't it? And they're not isolating. So we've got this completely mad system. I, it doesn't seem to work. And I don't understand why the... I mean, again, some... I mean, as we both commented on this program, bizarre decision-making around this. Because, like you said, I mean, those footballers, for whatever reason, would have access to testing. Now, I would presume... And I, I did read that yesterday that Mason Mount and Ben Chilwell had tested negative yesterday. Mm. Now, surely if another test had been done today and they tested negative, which I assume they probably would have, then I don't see why. Well, they could test them every day. Yeah. They I mean, some would say, oh, well, hold on, that's footballers using privilege and the fact that they're, you know, we wouldn't get access to that. Sort of I understand, I get that point, but at the same time, I mean, if the facility is available, surely use it then. Well, well you know. The, I think the problem is, what we've got now 
is a system of rules that's basically been built up over 15 months. And across those 15 months, as everyone knows, the situation has changed lots of times. It needs and huge updating, the, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And some of the rules, like the rules on what to do with schools and isolation, those, those were the rules that came in last September. Yeah. When we thought we were moving out of the pandemic towards <laughs> a normal Christmas. I mean, that's what the government had us believe in. Well, he did say that, didn't he? He said, we'll be back to normal by Christmas. He did, he said it. He said, and I think we'll London went Christmas. into like a national lockdown just Gavin before Williamson Christmas. Gavin Williamson was threatening teachers with <laughs> shutting down their schools because they were saying we've got to send our kids home for Christmas because of the, num- the amount of the virus. Cases, yeah. He was threatening teachers and then by January, full lockdown, no one's in school for three months. I mean, the government has changed the, moved the goalposts and changed the rules so many times now that some of the rules have got behind, so I've got behind where the virus actually is. Mm, I agree. And I just think we can't. We have, what we have to remember is that while lots of life feels quite normal now for a lot of people, it's normal in the context of the last eighteen months. Yes. If if we'd gone into this level of lockdown last February, back before all of this happened, people would have thought, "Why can't I have a dinner party with eight people in my house?" Why can't I go to a wedding? Why can't I have a party? Why can't I go to a concert? Why can't I go to the theatre? Why is everything cancelled? Why can't I go to the football? Etc, etc, etc. There's actually a lot of things you're not allowed to do. And in the summer, it doesn't much matter if you can't have eight people around at your house. Mm. But I tell you what, September will hit. And if things are still as they are now, it will still feel like a lockdown because you'll like, we'll be still stuck, only ha- allowed to have six people in our house. Mm. having to wear masks everywhere mm. not being able to have a party or a wedding not being able to go to dinner with more than five of your friends mm. it's mad I mean it? it's actually quite a lot of restriction and if two vaccines doesn't get us to a point where we can do that stuff then I'm not sure what what will mm. and so the government's got got to work out what it looks like when we've got this many people vaccinated and the virus increases and if that's a level of virus circulation, as long as people aren't getting sick and dying in in huge numbers, that's what we do with flu. We kind every of almost year. get back to normal, don't we? We've well, got to just get on with it, really. Well, that's we? what we do with flu every year. Mm. Around somewhere between twenty and thirty thousand people die of flu every year. Lots of people get sick. It's obviously very sad, but to an extent, life is full of risks. And what we have to do is work out what the risks are of COVID. They've clearly been way too high for the last 15 months and we've had to take action. But that won't continue to be true forever. And at some point, that decision has to be made. Absolutely. I agree. Two final very quick points on that, because I do want to move on to a couple of other things I want to speak about. But just two final points on that. Um, What's your view then, sort of it links into this, on the current guidance, I mean, we've spoken a little bit about that, but on the foreign travel guidance, because, I mean, we're seeing at the moment, Portugal has been added to the amber list. Most countries now are on amber or red. Um, the government say they are currently working on a plan for double jab arrivals, perhaps to avoid quarantine, whether that be coming here or going to whatever country they're going to. Um, I mean... We've mentioned about when it was at its peak and we should have shut the borders. We didn't do it. It's ironic now when countries are saying they're quite happy to accept visitors from here, particularly ones that have had both vaccinations, that we are not in a position where we're going to do it. I mean, I get at the moment perhaps it's tricky. Some countries have said they don't want us, you know, us going there because of the way the Delta variant has spread here. I understand that. But again, this is, this is another one where I think there's been a bit of a mess made of it all in terms of foreign travel. What's your view currently on restrictions around... I mean, I think Boris said yesterday, I think if you're going to go on a summer holiday, it needs to be here. Well, I think that our government repeatedly gets to the right answer a few months too late. And I think a few months ago, this would have been the right system. Yeah. Although, with the one caveat that I think is very important, that there should just be green countries and red countries. We need to stop confusing the issue with amber... I don't think it makes sense. Either somewhere safe to go to or it's not. Mm. And that's the position we should be in, especially now that we've got people who are vaccinated. Either safe to go if you're vaccinated, not safe to go to. Um, And I think that would make the whole thing a lot simpler and probably would open up quite a lot of places. But I think foreign travel is the one thing where people really will understand restrictions Mm. because 
other people in other countries are potentially not as well vaccinated mm. um, and we don't really want to risk bringing in whatever variants are going around in other places um, that have a high level of disease and a low level of vaccination and so having some kind of foreign travel restrictions just makes sense mm. um, I don't think people would argue with that but what they do want is a level of certainty that when they're jabbed they'll be able to go to other places with a similar similar level of vaccination and a si- and a similar level of virus mm. and that and that should be easy it should it should be fine if you're if you're double vaccinated we know that the vaccine works against all of the variants that exist so it should be fine mm. just one final quick point do you think that labor and sakir starmer maybe could have done more i mean we saw, didn't we, last week that the Liberal Democrats won a seat in Chesham and Amersham from the Tories that had been historically a, a, a seat that had been held by the Tories for, I think, 70, 80 years. Um, Labour didn't do very well, perhaps maybe expectedly, given their record there anyway, perhaps, I think. But just very briefly, do you think that Labour and Sakia Starmer and the whole of the Labour administration, if you like, maybe perhaps could and should be doing more to maybe challenge the government out on on some of these key issues that perhaps we've just been speaking about? Um, well, on foreign travel, for instance, Keir Starmer said in February, shut the borders, and the government didn't do it. Mm. In fact, they didn't do it until April. Yeah. I mean, most people listening to this, and me and you haven't been anywhere since <laughs> God knows God when, knows when. <laughs> um, but the borders weren't shut no and Keir Starmer was saying we've got to shut the borders because we're I not do vac- actually remember that yeah, yeah. We're, not, we're not vaccinated yet we're mm. having this good vaccination programme but we mustn't jeopardise mm. it by having the borders open as we do the government said oh no 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 it's fine and look what, where we are now true we're having extended restrictions extended worry I mean that's the thing it's not just about what the lockdown restrictions are it's about the level of anxiety and fear and worry that we're all living through because of it yeah and Boris Johnson is putting us through that he's putting us through the the restrictions we're currently under my friends who are getting married this weekend not allowed to dance at their wedding and um, they're putting us through that and that he's put, he's putting us through the worry of it all and there's a lot of worry, I think, about all of this right now, about what Delta variant's going to do, about whether or not we're going to be able to do things that, that are normal this winter, and about whether our friends and family are going to be safe. Mm. And Keir was saying, shut the borders, keep us all safe. And the government didn't do it. And then they didn't do it in March. And then they didn't do it in April. And then at the end of April, they did it, but it was far too late and the Indian variant was already here. Mm. So, on so COVID, perhaps that criticism has been unfair yeah on Covid I think actually Keir's been doing really well um, I think with Chesham and Amersham that was clearly just tactical voting mm. and voters are not stupid in fact they're very astute and they knew that in that seat was a race between the Tories and the Lib Dems and that the Lib Dems were the only ones who could beat the Tories and that's do you what think they a did. lot of the Labour voters yeah. went Lib Dem yeah. that's exactly what they did Mm. And the Tories that were unhappy with Boris and COVID and, and God knows what. I mean, everything. The lies, the evident sleaze around this government. If, I mean, sleaze is putting it mildly. <laughs> corruption. Um, they clearly were unhappy with it all. Yeah. They voted for the Lib Dems as the second candidate and yeah. the Lib Dems have won. I mean, I'm not sure that Labour's done much wrong there. Yeah. And if that happens, frankly in a host of other seats where it's between the Tories and the Lib Dems, I won't be unhappy. <laughs> We've got about six or seven minutes left. There was a couple of other quick stories I wanted to get in with you before we, before we finish. Um, there was a report released this morning um, by MPs, the Education Select Committee released a report. Um, white working class pupils have been failed by decades of neglect in England's education system. Um, some of the headlines that came out of that it says the use of the term white privilege suggesting white pupils are an advantage is the opposite of the reality for poor white pupils Um, I mean what did you make of that report I mean as somebody who's worked in education for as as long as I have um, yes there has always been I mean particularly with white English boys I've always seen there has always been some issues around 
um, attainment and achievement through various different things. Perhaps, um, you know, there's lots of factors you weigh into that income, family, you know, that can cause such issues. I mean, I have seen it in reality. But what did you make of that, that report um, this morning that was released by MPs? Well, look, the report is right that working class children in this country and in particular white working class children are struggling at school Mm. what it doesn't do or rather what it does badly is it for some unknown reason pits white boys in particular against ethnic minorities Mm. it just seems to me to be answering the wrong question Mm. and in doing so deliberately or or recklessly stoking division. Um, I mean, the use of the term white privilege seems to me to be throwaway and designed to attract headlines, when actually the issue is that working-class kids in this country, often in out of the inner-city areas where things are more diverse, mm. so in rural areas, yeah. are suffering... Coastal towns and coastal places towns like that. Exactly. Yeah suffering from underfunded schools. EMA has been abolished by yep. the coalition government. Yes, That's it was. the educational maintenance allowance, which gave poor children, uh, I think, about £15 a week back in my day. I think it was um, £30, actually. Was it? In my day. Actually, it was graded. There yeah, was two. it was £30 in was, my day a, when it was first yeah. introduced by Tony Blair. Yeah, so there was, there was a £30 level and a £15 level, I think. <laughs> and that was to help them if they att- attend schools. So they got it if they went to school. And they could spend it on whatever. And lots of them, I know from personal experience, spent it on helping their parents. Mm. Um, and that was a great thing. And that was abolished by the Tories. We've got Shore Start's been abolished. We've got um, real terms cuts for schools. We've got teachers on um, without getting a real terms increase for however many years. We've had all sorts of things, all sorts of programmes and support for those particular children, working class children, wherever they are, whoever they are, cut and what that has led to is this real disparity and I think the thing is in inner cities our schools have improved a lot over mm. the last 20 years yeah and as you say it's left places like coastal towns and rural areas comparatively worse off and those schools have been declining and they've not had the in- attention the investment um and they don't and they don't have the same resources now um, as what inner city schools do Um, and what that leads to is particularly white working class people struggling but what I don't see that report doing is comparing the white working class kids to the white middle class kids Mm. they specifically single out ethnic minorities yeah rather than actually turn it in because you're right because I think you've hit the nail on the head there class seems to have been ignored Um, and that actually is a big thing because yeah white middle class you know students may well have access to things like private schools or private tuition and and all of that sort of thing or well educated informed involved parents yes obviously some working class kids do have yeah um but which is the main thing as we all know that helps a child's education is having parents that are concerned with their education but I, i think the real issue here is underfunding of schools is what the Tories have done to our education system over the last 10 years that they've been in power. And writing a report like this, suggesting that it's something to do with ethnic minorities that white working class kids aren't doing as well, frankly, is abysmal. It's nothing to do with the kids themselves, whether it's the white working class kids or the ethnic minority working class kids or any other kids. It's to do with the rest of society, teachers, parents... So, social strata where they live it's all sorts of things that's just not not to do with that frankly mm. and it just feels disingenuous to blame it on white privilege as a term making people what feel get less attention mm. I mean I'm not sure that's true in, in schools where 98% of kids are white how can they have any less attention mm. when there's only you know one ethnic minority kid in their, in their school yeah true it's just that's just not it can't be right mm. so it's not about that is it it's about whole schools that are not achieving because of being left behind by this government absolutely um, we're going to have to leave it there um, thanks very much indeed for coming on as ever I wish we could have got 
some more topics in. We will next time, but um, thanks very much indeed for coming on. Um, that is it for the Liam Davis Show this Tuesday evening. Thank you to my guest, to Ella Crine, of course, and to John Isles. I'm back with the Shoreditch Radio podcast tomorrow night. Uh, we've got a Dragon's Den winner um, on the programme tomorrow night, Richard Ernest. Um, really looking forward to speaking to him. Um, but that is it for the Liam Davis Show, and thank you very much indeed for your company. Back next Tuesday night at 8 o'clock. <laughs>